1979, the late Jerry Falwell pioneered a political machine known as the Moral Majority. Perhaps you've heard of it. Falwell, originally a university pastor, and at that time somewhat of a celebrity preacher, a university president, became alarmed at what he saw as the rapid decline of morality taking place in America through the 60s and the 70s. He saw that traditional family values were under attack. He was concerned that sexual promiscuity was on the rise. He saw the coming advance of, at that time, the homosexual agenda. He saw the recent legalization of abortion schools that were promoting evolution and removing prayer, and he began to be alarmed. He began to be concerned. And so, he began to shift his focus in 1979 from his uh, televangelism ministry, where he was preaching on the radio and on TV. As one historian writes, he began recognizing that he could gain greater attention by talking about social issues rather than theological ones. And so that year in 1979, he turned from preaching to politics as the emphasis of his life. It started things off with a bang. In the fiscal year of 1979, Falwell fundraised $35 million from a mailing list of two and a half people. Now, to put that in today's terms adjusted for inflation, it's just under $100 million in 12 months. He'd found a way to mobilize people. He'd found a nerve that would cause them to give great resources. In fact, their uh, bang started there in 1979. He fundraised uh, what in today's money would be $100 million. And then in 1980, the moral majority was credited with helping Ronald Reagan win the presidency. Moral majority was self-described as being pro-family and pro-American. It's interesting, as many others had tried to do what Falwell did, and yet they didn't realize the success. And so, sociologists, historians have tried to figure out of all of the groups that were lobbying in that day, the kind of conservative political groups, why did the moral majority have an ability to fundraise at that level and to mobilize so many people? Well, Falwell was joined by other megachurch pastors. At that time, it was Charles Stanley bringing in a Southern Baptist. It was D. James Kennedy bringing in a Presbyterian from the PCA. And so, he began to unite over uh, doctrinal differences within evangelicalism. And then they reached beyond the purview of the gospel and began to bring in Catholics and Jews and those uh, Mormons who would, would feel that family values were important, and they began to coalesce around the idea of reclaiming America for traditional family values. If you want to know how it was that it would seem the secret to the, their success, they had within that mailing list and within their group 72,000 pastors who were part of the moral majority. 72,000 pastors who got in the pulpit and began to mobilize the church for political interests. 
Instead of prioritizing the simple message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather than focusing on feeding God's people his truth and letting that do its work in the evangelization of the lost and the edification of the saints, they began to focus on reclaiming America. That was the trade-off. Fast forward 10 years later to 1989 and the moral majority is no more. Had such a, a peak of interest and yet it quickly disbanded. And although the moral majority had in many ways aligned the American church with the Republican Party, even Falwell admitted that much of what they desired to accomplish never came to fruition. In fact, if you were to look at their checklist and compare today, what's to show for all of the time and all of the money that they spent? Every battle that the moral majority fought for is in the exact same spot or worse today. You understand it achieved nothing of their ultimate ends. The desire to, to reclaim America for God, the desire to bring through the political process of mobilizing legislation and candidates and the church to be involved, they were even concerned about voter registration, has amounted to nothing. Legal rulings today are immoral in many, many instances. Media and entertainment industry is more immoral today. The practice and celebration of sin in comparison to the 1980s, although it was bad then, is worse now. And so what was the problem with the moral majority? Was it what they stood for? No, not really. I hope that you're pro-biblical morality. Christians should care about many of the things the moral majority did. We should affirm what God affirms and hate what he hates. Oh, so was it the fact that they involved themselves in the American political process? No, absolutely not. We have a stewardship and a privilege as Christians. We, we get the opportunity to vote and uh, be involved in upholding legislation that would honor the Lord. We get to live in a democratic republic. We get to tangibly support those things. What the problem with the moral majority was, was that it was a misplaced hope and a misplaced focus on the means to accomplish that hope. The problem was a misplaced hope and a misplaced means for accomplishing that hope. See, what they failed to understand is what we so often fail to understand. God's mission for the church is to center on the evangelization of the lost and the edification of the saints so that we might be worshipers of God for his glory. See, what they wanted was a good desire. We should want the protection of civil liberties, the restraint of evil, truthfulness. Yet, my friends, that is something that is, is not promised or expected in this day. It's something that is coming in the future. In fact, there is a kingdom we know that is coming. And, and what we often struggle with as believers is we want the kingdom here and now. We want God's kingdom to come here and now through something that we have a little bit of control over. So at least if we can fundraise, if we can mobilize, if we can get the right party in control, if we can have the right person in the White House, if we can gain enough influence and clout, then somehow it just makes us feel better that we're starting to make progress in the right direction. 
I don't need to tell you this, but there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian empire. Those don't exist. It's not a biblical category. And if you were to stop and think for just a minute, what would have happened if the moral majority had been successful? What if Falwell had gotten everything on his laundry list? What if there were a Christian in the White House and Christian governors throughout all 50 states and Christian senators and Christian judges? What if abortion was illegal? What if evildoers were punished? Well, I can tell you this, everyone's going to feel better about reading the news and they're going to feel more hopeful about their grandchildren and maybe their grandchildren's grandchildren. But how would that impact the cause of Christ? I'll put forward to you you today that it it doesn't do anything to advance the cause of Christ. You understand that politics has no bearing. The environment and the culture that the church exists in has no bearing ultimately on the furthering of God's kingdom agenda. Now, I was thinking about this. We don't know exactly what would have happened if the moral majority had been successful in transforming the political landscape in America. But we have a, a little bit of an idea if we look back in church history. See, in the end of the 200s, the church was facing some of the most violent persecution it had ever known. The name Diocletian should ring a bell. And Diocletian was an emperor. And uh, really, prior to that time, you'd have little pockets of persecution that would come upon the church. But it wasn't something that was widespread. It wasn't, if you could say, at a federal level. It wasn't legalized at that point. So Diocletian, as emperor, had somebody in his ear... And this man hated Christians. His wife hated Christians. Interestingly enough, how those two go together. And so he was in Diocletian's ear. And Diocletian uh, began to listen to uh, this influence and slowly peck away, if you will, at the rights of Christians. So how it began was Christians in the military. They said, you know, we're we're not directly against your faith, but the issue is if, if you can't wholeheartedly support the empire as a soldier, then you're a threat to our morality. And so they began to derank Christians, derank generals. They began to get rid of their pensions and their savings accounts. And that was kind of the first wave. And what happened then was those who were underneath Diocletian, although it wasn't legal to begin to put Christians to death, would find great zeal and they would begin to put Christians to death as they were losing their military clout. Christians were viewed as a problem because they would hurt the morality of the empire. Then in 303, Diocletian issued an edict to remove all Christians from any position of responsibility throughout the government. So we're going to take away the influence in that way. Seems benign. And yet as it was applied, again, Christians were not only removed, but they were removed violently. The next decree was to destroy Christian buildings and books. And if people refused to hand over their books, then they were to be tortured and condemned to death. Eventually, Diocletian began to think that Christians were conspiring against him. And so he decreed that all church leaders be arrested and every Christian, not only the men, but the women and the children, offer sacrifices to the gods. Justo Gonzalez writes, thus was unleashed the most cruel of all persecutions that the ancient church had to endure. 
efforts were made to encourage Christians to abandon their faith. And it's interesting because he chronicles that Diocletian came on the scene and made things worse. They were unprepared. He, he writes that accustomed as they were, as accustomed as the believers were to the relative ease of several decades, many Christians succumbed. In other words, when believers were encouraged to abandon the faith, they'd been used to relative ease, and so many of them started to succumb in fear. The rest were tortured with refined cruelty and eventually killed in a variety of ways. Well, Diocletian, like all men, eventually died. He was succeeded by Maximinus, who sought to take those policies and enact them even further. And so he had uh, enacted the idea of maiming Christians and then sending them to work in stone quarries and thought, well, sure, that will take care of the problem. And as soon as these maimed believers showed up in the stone quarries, what do you think they did? They started planting churches in the stone quarries. And to his frustration, he realized, man, I can't stamp out this gospel influence. And so then he began killing and deporting because maiming and putting to hard labor wasn't enough. And so there was a decree that said uh, Christians should not be punished as long as they don't interfere with the public order. As long as they're not impeding public health, you could say. And so there was pressure against the church that was coming in an unprecedented level um, from the emperor at that time. And then through the turn of events, suddenly there's a new name, a young man coming to power named Constantine. This is the, the backdrop for Constantine coming to power in the Roman Empire. Constantine was on a conquest to expand the empire, and the night before a battle, he had a vision. And in this vision, this revelation, he was told to put the Christian symbol on the shields of the soldiers, which he did and secured a subsequent victory, solidifying in his mind that he wanted the Christian God to be on his side. He wanted the Christian God on his side. And so you begin to see, okay, what does it look like when at the highest levels of government, Christianity is in vogue? Christianity is supported. Okay, so here's the mindset. Now you have Christian in the White House, you have Christian governors, you have Christian judges, supposedly. Throughout the country, what does it begin to look like? Constantine legalized Christianity. Finally, there was a guy on our side. In fact, he said, all the Christians that have had their property taken away, get it back. All the Christians that have lost something in of position, they now get it back. Not only that, but the empire is going to begin to fund churches. So we're going to build churches and we're going to do that with taxpayer money. We're going to begin to build the buildings. What began to happen was the churches were filled with people flocking to them. In fact, converts happened so fast they weren't able to catechize them before baptizing them. They weren't able to disciple them in the faith, let alone even determine whether or not they were truly regenerate. Soldiers were ordered to worship every Sunday in an edict in 324. So all of the military needs to be in church every Sunday. Sounds like a good thing. We're just going to begin to fill up the churches. Constantine called together a church council in 325. He started removing pagan temples throughout the empire and replacing them with churches. So now you see that all the, all the marijuana dispensaries, all the bars, all of them need to be removed and we're going to replace them with churches. And so what do you think happened in the hearts of God's people? 
Christian theology began to be shaped by these new changing circumstances. It's interesting to read church history. See, prior to this, the church thought that it would be difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet in the days of Constantine, they began to see pomp and riches as a sign of God's blessing. Church buildings went from simple structures to get the job done, and they began to become very ornate. Preachers went from preaching in plain clothes to wearing vestments. No longer was it something that a a commoner would do, but it began to become a, a profession, so to speak. But perhaps the most significant change as the culture began to become so-called Christianized was in the area of the believer's hope. The area of the believer's hope. I want you to catch this. Eusebius of Caesarea was one of the greatest theologians of that time, and he was writing and documenting what was taking place. He was caught up in the apparent success of Christianity, and in the midst of that, his theology began to morph. Justo Gonzalez writes, although Eusebius does not go so far as to say it explicitly, in reading his words, one receives the impression that now with Constantine and his successors, the plan of God has been fulfilled. Beyond the present political order, all that Christians are to hope for is now their own personal transference into a heavenly kingdom. There was a tendency in this time to set aside or to postpone the hope of the early church. That its Lord would return on the clouds to establish a kingdom of peace and justice. And so Eusebius, along with many others, began to set aside in the preaching, in Christian preaching, the coming kingdom of God. So it began to happen in that time of prosperity for the church and being in season was to begin to forget that this earth is not our home and we're awaiting a coming kingdom and rather to be concerned with establishing the kingdom here and now. My friends, it is a luxury to have such a view. In fact, this is not a worldview that you could hold in many parts of the world, but it's one that you could hold in Constantine's Rome. It's one that you could hold in Europe at certain points in history or America for the past 300 years. But the kingdom is something that we're still waiting on. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1 and we'll see how the kingdom was on the mind of the disciples. The promise of the coming kingdom was in their thoughts and minds. Jesus has died. He's been raised again. He comes to meet the disciples. And he's talking to them in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. And when they'd come together, the disciples of Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
So it's on their mind is, okay, we've seen your suffering. We know that your suffering has to precede your exaltation. Now do we get to sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? Is now when we're going to see this start? And what does Jesus say to them? He say, oh, you know what? You, you don't understand the kingdom promises are spiritual realities. They're not actually going to happen in, in real life. All that stuff about peace and justice and righteousness, I just, that's going to come through the church. You know, he said to them in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, the kingdom is still coming as you expected. You just don't know when it's going to come. So what do you need to do in the meantime? Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So say, I'm not going to answer your question about when the kingdom is coming, but I'm going to tell you you've got a job to do in the meantime while you wait for that kingdom to come. I want you to go and testify about me. I want you to begin to share the gospel throughout the known world. What we're going to see in our text this morning in John chapter 18, and you can make your way there, is Jesus talking about this kingdom that is not of this world. This kingdom that is not brought about in a particular nation through a political process, but one that is originating from himself. John 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. John's purpose, as we said here, is to demonstrate the innocence of Jesus Christ. That's his point in writing this. To demonstrate that Jesus was unjustly condemned to die. That he was, in fact, innocent. And yet we're going to hone in on his statement down in verse 36, where he talks about this kingdom that is not of this world. Just to give you a, a quick reminder as we get to that verse, we looked last week at verse 28 where we saw uh, the entire Sanhedrin come and here they are crucifying the Lord of glory. They want him crucified and yet they're unwilling to go inside Pilate's house because that would be defiling. So we talked a lot about 
hypocrisy, the concern with outer defilement when there's inner corruption, the desire to not be righteous inside, but to appear righteous. And so Pilate goes outside to meet these Jews. Verse 29, in the middle of the night and early morning. And so they have a little meeting out there on the doorstep. Thinking about it, it's kind of like when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house. I know a few years ago we had a couple, couple ladies come to our house, and uh, they came at the wrong time because in seminary that week before we'd just been talking about how to combat Jehovah's Witnesses from Scripture. So I mean, I was like locked and loaded and ready to go, and just just waiting for my next opportunity. So it's like, hey, so glad you're here. Actually, I have some things I want to talk to you about, and. Uh, so I invited them in and, you know, they aren't allowed to come into the house. I mean, Susie was there, but they wouldn't enter the home. And so we stayed out kind of on the doorstep to have our conversation. And I was like, listen, you need to get your husbands. You guys should come back here. We should totally talk about this. And I think we had different agendas because they never came back. But we, we stayed out on the doorstep to have the conversation, right? We didn't come into the house. So Pilate is standing out here on the front of the praetorium to have a conversation with the Jews because they don't want to come inside. And he's saying to them, what is your accusation? In other words, why are you guys here in the middle of the night right now? This had better be important. Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That is just a great non-answer. Look, what he did is so bad. I mean, we would not be here if he did not do bad things that we're not going to tell you about. Truth of the matter is, of course, Jesus has not been doing evil. Think for a minute what Jesus has done. He's raised the dead. He's cured disease. He's driven out demons. He's made the, those who are paralyzed walk. He's restored sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. Those are the real facts of the things that Jesus has been doing. That's what he's been up to. And so Pilate says to him in verse 31, look, you guys take him yourself and you judge him by your own law. In other words, I am not taking debate right now this is some personal issue you guys have with your own guy, and I don't want to be involved in it right now. So the Jews said to him, verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. <laughs> we can't. We would love to put him to death, but we, we can't. They've already carried out the charge of blasphemy. They've already convicted him in their little monkey trial, but they can't carry out the sentence because that would be broke, breaking Roman law. So it's it's kind of like in their little community, they've said he's condemned to die, but none of us actually have the authority to act on that and carry it out. And so John gives us an editorial comment in verse 32. So if, if you're reading a letter and an editorial comment, it's when the, the writer puts things in parentheses and gives you a little note. John gives you a note and he's saying in verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show about what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, if, if the Sanhedrin had the authority to put Jesus to death, they would have stoned him. And stoning him would have broken his bones. And yet it had been prophesied that he'd be put to death by both hanging on a tree, because cursed is the man who's hung on a tree, as well as not having any broken bones. And so this was actually God's fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Jesus. So verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again. Goes back into HQ, he calls Jesus forward. And he said to them, are you the king of the Jews? Now what's Pilate trying to figure out here? 
He's trying to figure out, are you a threat? Are you an insurrectionist? Are you claiming that you're the king over against Caesar? And Jesus, in verse 34, answers him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you? about me. Man, I would not want to be on the receiving end of an argument with the Lord Jesus Christ. He just gives Pilate really an opportunity here. He, he puts it to his conscience. Look, do you really think that the guy that's standing before you right now is a threat to the empire? Truth is, this was the lie, the false charges Luke 23, we read that when they brought him to Pilate, they said he's misleading our nation, he's forbidding people to pay taxes, and he's saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. In other words, he's committing treason. He's trying to undermine the nation. Jews knew it was the only way that they could get Rome involved, the only way that they could get a conviction. Rome didn't care about blasphemy, but they would care about someone who was encouraging people not to pay taxes and creating an insurrection and claiming to be king. Pilate answers him in verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? In other words, Pilate's saying, hey, can we just, can we cut to the chase here? Why are you here? They wouldn't bring you here if there wasn't some problem. What's the issue? You're the one who got delivered here today. And Jesus looks at Pilate in verse 36. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now, I would love to know what went through Pilate's thoughts, even physiologically, what he experienced when Jesus said these words. Pilate's no dummy. He's no newbie. I mean, he was inept sometimes at governing, but he'd, he'd been in this position before and so he's standing before Jesus, or Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Jesus is unfazed. He's not begging for his life. He's not railing insults. He is calm, and he's undeterred, and he's unintimidated, and he looks right at Pilate in the eyes, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Implication is, unlike your earthly kingdom, Pilate, my kingdom originates from somewhere else. That's the preposition in the original, when you read of this world, it, it has to do with the origin of something. It doesn't originate. Its source is not this world. It isn't brought about through traditional forms of conquest. What's his evidence? He says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. In other words, we would have had some kind of a plan, some kind of an organized militia, some type of weapons stockpiled and an idea of how we would overthrow Rome. I would have been campaigning. You would have been able to, to point to all of the organization so that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, he says. In other words, there would have been some type of a, a coup, a coup d'etat where the, the government is overthrown the definition here is, is typically for a coup to take place, the government has to be overthrown by another power for at least a week. So in order to do that, you need significant resources. You need significant planning. You can't, even the weakest governments, usually you can't just go push over and take over for a week. And so Jesus is saying, look, if, if, if my kingdom actually originated from this earth, I'd be flanked right now by military men. 
and said, look at me. I've got fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot, who was a guy that would get excited about politics, but probably was not military trained. He could have said, look, if you need proof, just, just go ask the high priest's servant. Go ask Malchus. Remember Malchus? He was the guy that lost an ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because Peter wielded the sword and went for his head and missed and caught his ear. That's the extent of Jesus' military might. And then he repeats himself. He says, look, <laughs> there's clearly no one that I've surrounded myself with. There's no plan. There's no weapons. There's no military generals. There's no agenda here. No proof. And then he repeats himself and he says, but my kingdom is not from this world. So it have been very strange words to hear. They would have been perplexing. Because Jesus is not backing down from his claim to authority. In fact, in a minute, Jesus, uh, Pilate's going to say to Jesus, hey, don't you know that I've got authority over you? And Jesus is going to say, actually, don't you know that you don't? That every authority that you have is, has been given to you. This would have been unnerving to Pilate because if you'd captured uh, someone who wanted to take over the nation, one of two things is going to be happening. He's either going to be belligerent and defiant, so he's going to be basically spitting in your face, or else he's going to be soft and pliable and kind of sucking up and, and begging for his life and, and pretending that things need to be smoothed over. And so Jesus isn't spitting in Pilate's face. He's not kissing his hand. He's not angry and defensive, but he's also not cowering. He's just sticking to his claim. And he says, I've got a kingdom. And so the picture you get there is Jesus, in the way that he's operating, is looking at Pilate. And it's as if he says to Pilate, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're, you think I'm concerned about about Rome? You guys print out money and then you stamp your faces on it? You think that's what I wanted? That's so cute. My kingdom is not of this world. I don't need my face stamped on the money. I don't need a little garland wreath around my head. I don't need incense puffed to me. I don't, I don't need a conquest. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It originates somewhere else. Oh, this goofy little empire? I'm not, I'm not even interested in that. I'm not concerned. And so Pilate is, is trying to figure Jesus out, and I, <laughs> I almost feel bad for him. I mean, he's, he's hardened, but in verse 37, Pilate says to him, so you are a king? And so you just get the idea that he's, he's not totally able to figure out what is taking place right now. Jesus won't back down, and he's clearly not concerned about the Roman Empire. So Jesus looks at Pilate and he answers him and says, you say that I'm a king. He says, it is as you say. It's yours to give me that designation. Now, why is Jesus saying that? If he's the king, why is he not just saying I'm the king, but he's letting other people say it about him? Well, we see that outsiders call Jesus the king. In fact, the Magi called Jesus the king of the Jews when they came looking for him. Pilate calls him the king of the Jews and he's going to put that over his cross up on the top when he crucifies him. But, but Jesus right now is not being revealed as king. It's the wrong timing. 
And it's going to be misunderstood if he's revealed as the king of the Jews. So he's not denying it because he is in fact the king of this coming kingdom. And yet it's not the designation that he's taking to himself right now. And in fact, when he comes reigning as his king, he'll be a king of a lot more than just Jewish people. Jesus is concerned with a kingdom that is not of this world. So I want you to stop and pause for just a second and ask yourself, how much do I think about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? How often is it on my mind? One of the most impacting conversations I can remember having was I got the opportunity to be on a call with Dr. Michael Vlock, and he's written extensively on the doctrine of the kingdom. And so he's going to get on this call and answer technical questions about eschatology. His, his mind is brilliant in the scriptures. He's uh, well-trained in these things. He teaches at a seminary level. And you get on the call, and the first thing he says is, guys, every morning I wake up, and the first thought on my mind is, I want the kingdom to come. Every day I pray for the kingdom to come. Every day I think about it, it's what thrills my heart. It's what I get excited about. I have so much energy to study the Bible on the topic of the kingdom because I cannot wait for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom. That's impacting. Troy, this is not just a, a rote theological exercise. It's not merely doctrine on a paper, but actually for life, reflecting on the kingdom and banking your hope on it. My friends, I want to take just one gospel and show you something you already know, but how frequently the kingdom comes to bear in it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3, and look at how the, the thinking about the kingdom permeates the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the ministry of the forerunner. It's what he begins talking about and setting expectations for. Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. Jesus is tempted by Satan before he begins his ministry. What is one of the temptations? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's the temptation? You're promised that all the nations are going to bow before you and I'll give it to you now without the cross. Jesus is being tempted by Satan regarding the kingdom. Look at Jesus' ministry when he begins, begins preaching. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew records an entire sermon of Jesus beginning in Matthew chapter 5. You know it is the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is all about the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is who gets to be in. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Therever who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom 
of heaven. Jesus teaches his disciples that they're to pray for the coming kingdom. The Lord's Prayer, as it's called in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your entire life is to be oriented around this future kingdom, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus defines those who will think they're a part of the kingdom, but not in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Continue to look at the preaching ministry of Jesus. And as you guessed it, Matthew chapter 8, he's preaching about the sons of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 9, he's preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 10, he sends his disciples to go out and preach. And he tells them in chapter 10, verse 7, go preach the message of the kingdom. Matthew 11, he's talking about the kingdom. Matthew chapter 12, he's talking about the kingdom. You come to Matthew chapter 13, and it's parable after parable describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says it's like a seed that a sower sows on various kinds of soil. It's like the seed of the wheat and the tares growing together alongside one another. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. It is like leaven. It is like treasure. It is like a fishing net. It's explicit at the end of 13 and says in verse 41 that the kingdom is going to be established with those who belong to Christ And in that day, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew chapter 16, he's saying that the church has been given the keys to what? To the kingdom. Matthew chapter 18, the disciples are arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Just a few days prior to Jesus standing before Pilate, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of an unridden foal. And the crowds went before him, according to Matthew 21, verse 9, and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. That's royal language. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 22 records that many are called into this kingdom, but few are chosen Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 22 of of a king who invites guests to the wedding celebration of his son. And when the invitation is disregarded, that's Israel. He extends the invitation to anyone who will come. That's the Gentiles. He says that we're to be ready for the kingdom. He compares it to virgins that don't have oil and miss the bridegroom when he arrives in Matthew 25, 1. comforts his disciples by saying that the king will one day give to his subjects an inheritance, which is the kingdom, Matthew 25, 34. My friends, what you find, the desire in your heart to see a society that is just, where righteousness reigns and truth prevails and evil is punished and there is peace. That is a good desire and it is coming and it is promised to you as an inheritance. But it's not here and now. 
See, what everyone was confused about in the first coming of Christ was not that they misunderstood the prophecies concerning the Messianic reign. They understood properly what it would look like when the Messiah reigns. What they misunderstood was the timing of events. They misunderstood that he wasn't coming in his first coming to establish that kingdom. Too often we lose sight of the coming kingdom and we want the kingdom here and now in our own terms and something that we can control. My friends, it is a good desire, but it is a misplaced hope. You know how you're to think about belonging to Jesus and waiting for his kingdom now? Paul came back and preached the gospel. He went back on his first missionary journey to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And he encourages them in Acts 14, and he says this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying there, in, in order to get saved, you have to suffer. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is simply trust in Christ and get saved. He's talking about entering into the kingdom when the king comes back and he's seen in all of his glory. Now, some of you might be saying, well, if the kingdom is coming, then where is Jesus right now? Is he not in control right now? It's a good question. Where is Jesus right now? It's a good ordination question. What is Jesus doing right now? Where is Jesus right now? Well, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And he has all authority and he has been given the right to rule. There's nothing that happens apart from uh, his sustaining of it and his decree of it. So what gives? Well, he hasn't been established yet on the throne of his father, David. And all things have not been put in subjection to him. Satan is still deceiving the nations. World superpowers are still doing what they want. Error and deception are running amok. And yet there's coming a day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus has all of his enemies subdued under his feet. And that will be a glorious day. My friends, my question is for you, do you belong to that kingdom? Do you belong to that kingdom? Are you, is your citizenship in that kingdom? through simple faith in the life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. If it is, then you don't have to, to be concerned about any earthly kingdom. How often did Jesus address the Roman Empire in his ministry prior to this interaction with Pilate? Really doesn't address it a whole lot. He has other people come and, and bring issues to him that he has to talk about, but it's not his focus. Why? Because it doesn't have any bearing on his coming kingdom. See, the kingdom of our Lord is not cultural transformation. It's not to eradicate poverty. It's not to relieve human suffering. That day is coming, but it comes when he brings it. So how are we to respond? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that we're to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. One that cannot be shaken. And then you're to realize that if you belong to this kingdom, then you are to be an ambassador for this king. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
You understand that while we're on this earth then, our primary work, our primary focus is for people to understand the good news of the coming kingdom. And the fact that they could be a part of this kingdom if simply they will pay homage to the Son. If they will bow in reverence to Christ, He will bring them into His kingdom. And then lastly, let this be a comfort to your hearts. The end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, as we conclude our journey on just a, a rocket tour of the kingdom through that one book of the Bible. Matthew 26, 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus is saying, I want you to look forward to that day when we're all going to be together in the kingdom. It's not happening right now, but you're to find comfort in this. And so my friends, as you think about what is happening in the world around you, as you see evil prevail, it is a good thing to long for righteousness. It is a good thing to pray for righteousness. But that's not where our hope is placed. Cultural transformation has nothing to do with the progress of the coming kingdom that will prevail. That is where we're to fix our hope. And the means by which we get there is the proclamation of the gospel. It's the evangelization of the lost and the edification of the saints. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, uh, so often, so often my eyes look at the things around me and my soul gets unsettled. Um, Lord, I pray that you would deepen and anchor our convictions uh, to the things that we have studied today. Uh, Father, that we would see that the kingdom priorities of, of being salt and light, of not complaining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, of um, telling the truth and urging sinners to repent and find forgiveness in Christ. Lord, that is to be our primary ambition. Lord, and there's such relief in that. There's freedom in that. Uh, because it tells us what our place is and what our responsibility is. And it makes those lines clear. And so, Lord, we pray, as saints have prayed for 2,000 years, let your kingdom come quickly, Lord. Now, we want to see you reign and rule in justice and righteousness and peace. Father, I pray that you would cause us to be encouraging one another in these things, Lord, not foolishly getting into lulled into confusing your agenda with or the agenda of a, of a political party or, or any of the other things that we begin to attach ourselves to. Lord, we thank you that our kingdom cannot be shaken. Fill us with gratitude for that reality. In your name we pray. Amen.